Welcome to the World Nomads podcast, delivered by World Nomads, the travel lifestyle and insurance brand. It's not your usual travel podcast. It's everything for the adventurous, independent traveler. Thanks for tuning in to the World Nomads podcast with Kim and Phil, revisiting a destination, Phil, that we featured not long after launching the podcast, but we're going to do this with fresh eyes and ears. It's South Africa. Okay. In the last time we looked at South Africa, we told you about the man who moved from shark culling to shark conservation and the photographer who survived a deadly snake bite from a member. There will be a link to that episode in the show notes, of course. But there are so many reasons a nomad would want to visit this destination, so why not keep on exploring what it has to offer? Not only, Phil, is the landscape diverse with abundant wildlife, but it's also the adventure capital of the world. The cities are vibrant and interesting, and it's a photographer's dream. There are also plenty of opportunities to get off the beaten path. So in this episode, we'll introduce you to Briny. Yeah, you get some really cool ones in Kruger, like the um, uh, Lamagaias. No, not Lamagaias. I'm getting a shake of the head. There are no (laughs) (laughs) other large vultures. (laughs) She may be a little dodgy on the birds, but she does know about animals and she goes on to argue size matters in South Africa's uh, Kruger National Park. Um, We'll hear about a tour in which travellers can learn about San culture and language, plus meet a Swedish couple who've embarked on a bold adventure to Australia. But our first guest is no stranger to this podcast. No, she certainly isn't, Phil. Sarah and her husband, Tim, remember them? They're the adventurous couple who headed off on a 20-month-long honeymoon blogging as they went as our 21st century odyssey. Well, once we got to know them, we were really keen to know about any arguments they had the further into the honeymoon period they got. So we we did this big overland journey in Africa, big camper truck thing, and we were sleeping in tents and kind of uncomfortable accommodations, and it was epic and amazing but also pretty exhausting and there was one morning where tim got up and it's like you know how sometimes it just seems like someone is trying to be very loud like they're just like (laughs) stomping their feet and like everything they do is just like crazy loud and it woke me up and i rolled over and said to tim it's like i cannot wait for the morning where i do not wake up next to you (laughs) and then he looked so sad and i was like oh my gosh that was so much meaner than i meant (laughs) we were just getting so tired and we needed like a proper night of sleep and i just couldn't do it anymore (laughs) yeah i know exactly what you mean my husband is a massive early riser and when i say a massive early riser we can Talk about 3.30 to 4 o'clock in the morning. Really? Yes. So I, from about that period on until around 6 when I'm waking up, I'm very conscious of every cup of coffee that he's making. Can I ask you both a question? You yeah. first, Kim. Do you read books when you go to bed at night? Do you read in bed? Yeah. Sarah, do you read in bed? Yeah, sometimes I'll read on my Do tablet. you reckon you can turn the light out? Oh, come <laughs> on. <laughs> Well, now, Phil, I would say I, so I'm reading on my tablet and I turn my, um, my, I have a red light that filters out the blue light and it hardly bothers Tim at all. Okay. Well, you've got your answer. I'm old fashioned. I've (laughs) got the lamp next to the bed. Rustling pages. Oh, come on. He's out to it by then. He's up at 3.30. I told you that. (laughs) So before we, let's get back to South Africa, you, you home now and what's it like? What was the journey like? What's it like trying to integrate yourself back into that kind of nine to five world if that's exactly what you're doing 
of course, Tim and I can't really ever do anything super conventionally. So even though we're both back to work, we're both traveling almost weekly for work. So um, even though I live in Wisconsin, I'm actually currently talking to you from California, which is where I'll be working for the next year and just traveling back and forth. Um, but it took about two months from the time we got home to to find to each find a job that we that we wanted to do and that we were excited about. And that period of time was really weird for me because it was the first time in as long as I can remember in my adult life where I didn't know what I was doing next. It's like when I was working, I was saving up for our first big round the world trip, which we did in 2014. And then when we were on that trip, you know, we were immersed in that and it was really exciting. We were always planning, you know, the next thing that we were going to be doing. And then when we got back from that one, we found work pretty quickly. And then as soon as we started working and we started saving up for our big 20 month honeymoon. So you know, all this time we've always had like something big that we were planning towards and looking forward to. And then for the first time we didn't have that. And I just drove myself stir crazy trying to, to, you know, find something to do that was travel related. I started like looking up itineraries for things to do in our hometown. Is this when you came up with, uh, organized adventurous? So you sort of, I don't know if you've ditched the blog, Our 21st Century Odyssey, but it is now known as Organised Adventurer. Right. So, yeah, Our 21st Century Odyssey was always about our personal travel journal and where we documented things for our friends and family a little bit, but mostly for us as like a genuine online scrapbook of our travels together. Um, And then at the same time, I kept getting questions from friends and family about, you know, what was our itinerary in this particular country or how do we plan trips of this magnitude? And I also found that I was really enjoying helping people plan their own trips. So I started trying to do both on the same blog. And I think I ended up doing neither of them justice the way I wanted to, because I was always trying to accommodate my own personal travel journal at the same time as I was trying to draft out an itinerary and I just ended up doing neither of them the way that I actually wanted to. And that's when I was like, you know, these are two different projects, two different concepts. So our 21st century odyssey will always exist for our personal travel, um, logging for the blog that I intend to be kind of like the outward facing blog, the blog for other people to read and find tips about how to plan big round the world trips or even small, you know, weekend jaunts. Um, that's going to be organized adventure. Okay. So we're picking your brains then on South Africa. So apart from the uh, argument that you had with Tim, where you didn't want to wake up <laughs> next to his face ever again, <laughs> what did you do then? What would you be <laughs> suggesting? Yeah. So we crossed over into South Africa from the mid as part of our big overland Africa trip. And we honestly didn't spend very much time in South Africa. It was very much like the the tail end of our Africa journey. Cape Town, I think, is one of the most picturesque cities that I've ever been to because you have Table Mountain and this entire mountain range kind of like looming um, kind of squeezing the city between the mountains and the coastline and it creates this very dramatic location. Um, it's quite beautiful. It's a really unique city. Well, I love Cape Town too. Uh, I haven't been there for a long time, but I, I had a great time when I went there. Did you get around the other side as well over to, what is it, like Camps Bay and Lundudno and those places on that side? Yeah, we did. We actually rented a car one day and, and just did this big drive around the peninsula um, through Camps Bay and then down into Table Mountain National Park and the the Cape of Good Hope. And we, you know, saw those dramatic coastlines and we saw fur seals and 
penguins, like these animals that you don't normally think about when you think about Africa. So it was kind of cool to go from seeing like, you know, lions and cheetahs and, you know, those quintessential African animals. And then we get down to Cape Town and it's like, oh, we can see fur seals and penguins. And, you know, I just didn't really expect that at all. Phil, doesn't matter what sort of nomad you are, whether you're adventurous, independent, off the beaten track, we all love a wine. Are we all in agreement? <laughs> sure. <laughs> so what was it like then in Cedarburg, staying in a, in a vineyard and what was the wine like? So I'm not, you know, a wine connoisseur, but there were a couple of wines that we tried that evening that, were types that I had never heard of before. So like we tried, I believe it's called a Pinotage, might be totally butchering the pronunciation of it, but I'd never had that before. And it was really good. And I was, you know, kind of surprised that I'd never even like heard of it or tried it previously because I've done my fair share of wine tasting. And then we also had one that was like a a tea infused ruby vermouth, which like isn't a wine per se. Um, It just had some kind of like unique things that were different from what I'd seen at like the wineries in Europe or even like in California or in the States. Well, listen, so good to hear that you survived it. The marriage is intact. You're uh, back oh, working yeah. uh, and on your new projects that, that you happen to share with us. So be nice to keep in touch. Yeah, absolutely. It was great catching up with both of you. Phil, can you go to the bottle shop and yeah, grab I'll get a, a couple of Stellenbosch, no problem. Would you mind? Yeah, I'm, off my, I'm on my way now. Back in a minute, Kim. <laughs> okay, well, Phil is at the bottle shop. I'm catching up with Sophia and Frederick, otherwise known as Vagabonds of Sweden. Now, they're currently in Australia, kidding out a van to drive around the country. But they're no strangers to travel. And while they've visited many countries, they didn't last long in South Africa. Yeah. We had been traveling for eight months at that time and I just, I think we stressed a bit too much and I was really homesick and missed things, not like not necessarily the home, but it was just really hard and I just wanted to relax and go home. So, so I just booked the tickets and I called my mom and told her that we are coming back home tomorrow. Can you pick us up at the airport? So yeah. You didn't see anything in South Africa outside of no. Johannesburg? No, yeah, no, just not Johannesburg. Really. <laughs> uh, up until that time, we had uh, spent a lot of time uh, going from place to place, hostel to hostel. So it was uh, a lot of stress in the, in the way that we traveled. So we didn't stay for long at each place. I think that was one of the factors. Take us through Vagabonds of Sweden and how, how it started. We actually started as a, with another name, a Swedish name like around the world 365, but in Swedish. So when we got back from our last trip, we decided that we wanted to go with something more international. And we had thought about Vagabonds of Sweden, that name, for a long time. So tell us what you were doing, firstly Sophia and then Frederick, before you decided to become this this brand. We have been working in Norway the, for the last six years. And I've been working with accounting and salaries and economics. And uh, then we just decided that we wanted to do something else. So we went for a 15-month trip, came back to Norway. I worked another year with the same and now I just quit. And decided to go for this for a while. And you, Frederick? Yeah, I've been uh, hopping around a bit, actually changing jobs. Uh, I had maybe three or four jobs, I think, in uh, in Savanger in Norway that uh, that we lived and worked. And um, the last one was really within uh, logistics, like uh, distribution supervisors. I was coordinating truck drivers and stuff like that. 
but always uh, in the time that we got back, at least from around the world trip, we have been working on this website and trying to uh, to make that functional so that we have something else besides Instagram to to highlight our brand. Okay, well, once you explore the website, you see where you've written your current chapter. And at the time of writing, you were planning to come to Australia. So you've arrived. How's it going? It's going forward. We, yeah. uh, it took us two weeks and then we bought ourselves a van. We lived in it for two weeks just to get a feeling of it. And now we are staying at a lady here working in her garden and converting on the van. And we have just teared everything out. So now we're sitting in the van, which is empty and really white and shiny because we have washed <laughs> yeah. it. So hopefully we can start with the electricity now and then start building on it so that we can hopefully live in it in maybe three or four weeks. I've been following you on Instagram and one thing I wanted to ask Frederick, there was a, was a time when you first bought the van where you were struggling to sleep in it because of your height. (laughs) 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 Has that changed and how have you managed to, well I know that you're not living in it yet but obviously you've sort of done your plans which I've seen on Instagram. How big does this bed have to be and how tall are you? I'm uh, in centimetres, I'm 187 so yeah, the, the first two weeks when we were exploring Port Douglas and Cape Tribulation and everything, uh, the bed was pretty small, so I have to sleep with my legs out in the in the aisle, so to speak. So <laughs> it was uh, it was kind of difficult, and also we parked in places where the car was in an angle where we slept. Downhill. Yeah, downhill. <laughs> so it has it has been a few challenges, but um, but now we're gonna make the bed bigger, but also so we can sleep both uh, in one direction and then change it. So we can put up uh, how do you Ex- say, like, extended mattresses. Yeah, extended in a way. So we we have to to plan it that way. Otherwise, it's going to be tough for yeah. ten months. So when we change it and put up some extra mattresses, it will be two meters yeah. in the other direction, so that Frederick can fit in it too. You'll hit the road until around May next year when you'll head off to New Zealand. So you're in far north Queensland at the moment. This is the first time that you've been to Australia, I'm assuming. Yeah, it's the first time in Australia. Yeah. So after traveling the world and all those countries. How how do we stack up? Australia and New Zealand was actually on the list when we traveled the world, but it was we only had like fifteen only fifteen months. So uh, and the budget didn't really uh, allow us to no do. allow us to to travel to Australia, for example. But yeah, Australia is a is a very beautiful country. The the, the things we've seen so far, and we're so excited to to go along the east coast and maybe a little bit inland and see what else we. Uh, experience. We're really happy that we didn't have time for it last time so yeah. that we really can do it full time now for a year. And yeah, then take it slow season. and uh, go to all the places we want to see. Well, that's the thing about Australia compared to, to uh, Europe. You know, it doesn't take long to cross a border and you're in a totally different country with a different language, different culture, different food. Um, it's not quite the case in Australia. We're a very big country. There's a lot to see. There is, yeah. This time, uh, it's a little bit different from the trip we did last time because then we planned so much. That's one of the reasons that we went home early for about in about eight months when we had traveled. Uh, so this time we haven't planned that much. So we're going to take it slow and be very spontaneous. And uh, if we hear something, you should go there and uh, stuff like that. And we, we're going to do it. So we have more time now to, to explore everything. And Sophia, are you homesick yet? No, I'm not. Not at all. And I think mostly because we're taking it really slow and get to work out and we get to eat great food. And yeah, I think that's mainly it. And also the thing that we are going to 
be in the van and have our own home. Makes the difference. So it was nothing personal against South Africa. <laughs> I hope I won't get go home this time. No, I don't think so. No. We'll have a link to Vagabonds of Sweden in show notes and check in with Sophia to make sure she's not she's too homesick <laughs> yeah. in future episodes. A pic of the guys on our Facebook page too in the van has inspired Michelle, who's part of the group, to start shopping around. So make sure you join in the conversation by searching for the World Nomads podcast on Facebook and tell your friends. I think you've got the five friend rule, haven't you? Yeah, well, we'd like everybody to tell because word of mouth is the best way that, you know, people find out about a podcast. So challenging you there to tell five friends about the podcast. Well, obviously you're back with some South African wine. That I have. Tried. I just about had to go to South Africa to get it, by the way. <laughs> but before we get into that, what's your travel news? Okay, all you digital nomads out there or anyone travelling with a MacBook Pro 15-inch, be aware that several airlines have banned these models produced between 25 and 2017, the ones with the retina display, because of a potential fire risk. Oh, didn't that happen with phones earlier yeah, in the Yeah, Samsung year? phones as well. That was yeah, a year or two back, I think. Well, Apple's recalled these laptops now, the ones with the dodgy batteries, and you can check if yours is affected by entering the serial number on the Apple recall site. We'll link to that in show notes resources as well, so yep. you can get straight there. Prince Harry has launched a sustainable – let me do that again. <laughs> Prince Harry <laughs> Prince Harry has launched a sustainable travel initiative. Try saying that after South African wine. <laughs> yeah, no, we've left that to the end for okay. that reason. Uh, the Duke of Sussex has said, travel has the unparalleled power to open people's minds to different cultures, new experiences, and to have a profound appreciation for what the world has to offer. As tourism inevitably grows, it is critically important to accelerate the adoption of sustainable practices worldwide and to balance this growth with the needs of the environment and the local population. Well said, Your Highness. Well, you didn't say it quite like Prince Harry, (laughs) (laughs) but we got the gist. Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Is that it? That's it. I'm done. Thank you. Now, established in 2003 by global adventure travel company G Adventures, Planetera Foundation is a not-for-profit and it's contributed millions of dollars towards projects in areas of social enterprise, healthcare, conservation and emergency response. Now, we caught up with President Jamie Sweeting to tell us about a project in South Africa. Yeah, we were at a conference uh, discussing sustainable travel where Jamie was speaking about moving away from doing less harm to doing more good, which I think is a great idea. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, certainly in this age of, of over-tourism and, and flight shaming and, and, and these sorts of things that, you know, we need to remember that, you know, tourism has this unbelievable ability to and power to do good around the world. And, and you know, I, I think people look at the, the scary numbers of, of 1.3 billion international trips. And if you add in the domestic tourism, it's some 8 billion trips are taken a year. Um I see that as 8 billion opportunities to do good, right? Um, yeah, I mean, certainly we all need to be working on on doing less harm uh, and, and minimising our environmental footprint. But, uh, you know, what about focusing more on the good that tourism can do? And, and that's really what Planetera is all about, is is looking at um, communities in the uh, and, and in individual groups in society that uh, aren't currently benefiting from tourism, but but could you know literally use tourism to change their lives, and, and that's what we where we come in. Okay, give us an example of that. Then um, I know you're doing a, a lot of projects. There's one in South Africa in particular. Sure. Um, you will have to pronounce it because. <laughs> 
Kwatu. Uh, it's, uh, I can't say it quite as well as, as we should. Uh, it, it's an amazing uh, project um, uh, that is, is um, just uh, about 45 minutes outside of Cape Town in South Africa. Um, and it's a, a tra- uh, hospitality training center for the San people, uh, uh, better known uh, perhaps to your audience as the Kalahari Bushmen. Um, and um, uh, you might ask, well, what, you know, why is there a training center for uh, tourism for the Kalahari Bushmen or the San people uh, outside of, of Cape Town? And, and the answer is actually comes back about 30 years ago, um, uh, the um, the elders from the eight different nations of, of these people got together and said, well, where should we build a cultural centre? And they argued for five straight days, and the paramount elder, uh, after five days, said, I've made a decision, um, we're going to have it in Cape Town. And everybody's like, well, that's over a thousand miles from any of us. And he's like, precisely. So um, uh, the reality was that uh, back then, Cape Town was really the biggest tourism destination in Southern Africa. Um, and he wanted to uh, begin to educate people about the San people, um, uh, where the tourists were going, uh, and where the population was. Um, and uh, and so this this project started uh, many many years ago as a uh, as an I, way to educate people about the the history and culture of, of their people. But now it's a, a training centre for um, the youth of uh, of, of the. San people from all over Southern Africa um, and they come and it's a resident program and our travellers get to go and uh, experience um, uh, a fabulous uh, meal and, um, and and experience the cultural centre that, that's been built out in the countryside uh, just outside of, of Cape Town. And, and so what sort of benefits does that then take back to the local community out, back a thousand kilometres away? Sure, so I mean there's a lot of different benefits. So we're the first tour company that's actually worked with them so that's given them a lot of experience of working with small group uh, travel companies in 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 the past it was only sort of individual tourists um, that were popping in uh, uh, here and there so uh, it's given them experience in in working with tour groups um, but it's also um, it's it's sort of on the job training right um, you know t- a lot of these communities that they're coming from don't have many tourists or travelers right now so they don't you know I, I, I spent a lot of time in the in the 90s doing ecotourism and this whole phenomenon of build it and they will come um, and, and I can assure you that in most cases build it and they won't come right. um, uh, and I think that's the joy of working with a company like G Adventures is we um, we work with communities that are in and around where tour companies are already going um, we're not trying to build a market from scratch and and um, and so really what these these kids get to learn is is um, on the job training of working with travelers so you know they learn english they learn how to interact with with foreigners um and uh, you know the amazing thing about a company like g adventures is you know well primarily we're, we're drawing travelers from the english-speaking world we we've in the last five years we've um had travelers from over 160 different nationalities come on our traps so you know the multicultural nature of of the the kind of people that they're being exposed to these kids and and learning from from how to interact with them is is, is you know unsurpassed so what sort of impact has it had 
Well, the great thing is, I mean, you know, uh, the, the one project I didn't get to talk about in, in my speech this morning because I ran out of time was... Right, um, exclusive. <laughs> is, ...is this amazing project in Botswana called the Dakari Lodge, which is the only San people-owned and run uh, um, lodge in the world. Um, and we found out about them because of a student at the, um, the project in South Africa, and he came to us and said... Well, you know, we, we, you know, my community's got this lodge, and why can't we work with that? And so um, we were like, well, yeah, why can't we? So we went and met with um, the people that run that lodge, and um, and again, they've they've never worked with uh, tour companies like us before, and and you know, it's been a really exciting project to work with, you know, the only community-owned and run sand lodge in the world, and uh, yeah. uh, what an opportunity for our travellers to go and experience that. Absolutely. Well, one of the interesting things from uh, from your presentation just earlier is uh, you were talking about what, uh, a particular project in the uh, Sacred Valley as well where you know as you in said Peru, a, million, yep. in Peru, a million people go past about one about a kilometre away from where they were just tell us that story because that's pretty amazing yeah so this is the the Pawa community um, uh, restaurant um, which is literally the, the community of Pawa is about 1.2 kilometres off of the main road to uh, for everybody who's going to Machu Picchu um, you have to go into the Sacred Valley to get on the train or, or to hike the Inca Trail um, so there's somewhere around a million people that are going to, to Machu Picchu every year and they're just passing by this road this community had very very little benefit from tourism there were a couple of uh, the husbands that worked in um, either cooks or, or porters on the Inca Trail but other than that they weren't really getting any visitation so um, and we were just stopping at random restaurants on the on the road you know our travelers have to eat um, and so we work with the community and say well, well how about the idea of you creating a community owned and run restaurant and they were like well yeah we know how to cook um, uh, on the whole they, they you know we we actually in this case brought in a, a a fabulous chef from uh, um, who, who was originally from the Cusco region, but uh, uh, had, had sort of built a name for himself uh, as a head chef in several restaurants in in Lima. Um, and uh, we brought him in to work with them to build from their own culinary history and and, and tradition, but to you know add a little bit of spice and flavour to it. And um, you know, I, I, one of my proudest things since I've been running Planetera was a couple of years ago the. Uh, the lady who is the uh, editor-in-chief of uh, Gourmet magazine in Canada named it as one of her 10 best meals of the year in her year-end wrap-up, and I wow. thought that's pretty darn cool, right? Yeah, uh, high five. Because, um, you know, this is a community that literally five years ago no tourist had ever been in, and, and here they are running a, a restaurant that gets top praise from a, an amazing uh, culinary uh, expert like that. So Fantastic. do more good than harm, that's yes. your message. Yeah. Ultimately, I, I think, yes, we, we all need to, you know, in our, our personal lives and, and our professional lives, you know, do less harm, certainly. But why not focus more on the positive in life? Why not really look about what good we can do? And it's, you know, it really doesn't need to be earth-shatteringly difficult to do it. And uh, so, you know, when, when faced with a choice, you know, make the good choice. Well said, Jamie. It certainly isn't that hard. Now, Bryony joins us. We mentioned her uh, at the start of the podcast. She was a bit shady on her bird knowledge. <laughs> but, but she's back again arguing size matters in South Africa's Kruger National Park. 
Yeah, so um, obviously with all wildlife, there's exceptions to every rule, but generally the bigger, stronger animals are the ones that uh, get the most mates, the most food and do better in nature. Um, it's not always the case, though, as I witnessed in my story, the small animal was the one who did better. But uh, as a general rule, size does matter. Okay, so tell us what you witnessed. Well, there's a lot of giraffes in Kruger. So uh, anyone who's been to Kruger will know that you're often on the lookout for um, predators. That's the, the kind of what people really want to see, things like leopards and lions. But you will encounter a lot of elephants, zebras and giraffes um, whilst you're just driving around looking for other things. So we'd seen an awful lot of giraffes. Um, I love giraffes, but we'd got to the point where we weren't stopping for every single animal. Um, we were driving along them and we saw these two that looked like they were sizing each other up. Um, and my husband and I both... Uh, wildlife professionals so we, we kind of recognized an unusual behavior slowed to a stop and within kind of seconds they'd started slamming their necks together which is how they battle so people often think of giraffes as quite gentle vegetarian creatures but when they the males are fighting it can actually be a really kind of aggressive display and they can kind of cause enormous damage just by swinging their necks together because they get a fair bit of momentum going and they've got little horns on the top of their heads right yeah they do go you get a big momentum going and they've got really really muscly necks so they can cause damage and sort of bruise each other they can even kill each other it's not doesn't happen often but it can happen and yeah they have these tiny horns on the tops of their heads which are called ossicones um, so what happened with these two, which was unfortunate for the, the larger animal, was the ossicones got stuck on the leg of the smaller animal, um, which obviously wasn't planned, but it meant that he was completely at the mercy of the smaller animal because the smaller animal could then continue to beat him up whilst he was just stuck on the leg and he couldn't do anything until he just collapsed with exhaustion. And it was at this point you thought, oh, no, he's dead. Yeah, genuinely we're convinced. And it was one of those kind of horrible things that is often the case in safari. People want to see kills and action and animals eating stuff, but you almost don't want to as well because, of course, it's not pleasant. No, it's gruesome, <laughs> yeah. It's horrible. And we were sat there and we were like, wow, we've just witnessed the most amazing thing. And, you know, one giraffe is one. But we're looking at a dead animal, which is really sad as well because we're thinking, oh, it's not even, you know, it's not even been killed for food. It's just dead. <laughs> um, but we waited it out and amazingly it, it did jump back up again. Um, and then it turned around and obviously ran off. Were you were you actually there on uh, travelling or were you uh, as part of a, a project? No, so that occasion we were just travelling. So yeah, we both work um, in conservation as our jobs and then when we're on holiday we go and look at more wildlife. Um, it's, uh, it's a bit of an obsession. So it was a real amazing experience though because Kruger is obviously every kind of wildlife conservationist dream and we were really were lucky to witness this this kind of special moment. So tell us about Kruger, because I understand in parts of it you have to stay on the roads, but then there's other parts where you can go bush. Yeah, so um, Kruger is kind of, I think, not what most people picture when they picture a safari. Many people's picture of a safari is what they see on TV, which will be open plains and cheetahs running around. There is a small, well, not small, it's still large, but small, comparatively small area of that within Kruger is that kind of grassland where you've got open habitats and uh, 
visible creatures, which obviously make for great filming. Um, but a lot of Kruger is actually quite thick bushland. So you really have to look for the wildlife. Um, and there's also some mountain areas. Kruger is huge. It's, it's bigger than Wales. You do spend time in your car. Obviously, that's because there's potentially dangerous animals around. So there's, you can't go wandering about. Um, but you can spend time walking around if you go out with a, a hired professional guide who will be armed um and there are certain areas where you can get out for example and go and sit in a hide and look at the hippos and things so it's an absolutely amazing place to go and it certainly we've traveled a lot to see wildlife but kruger is up there as one of the top places because just the sheer numbers of animals we saw every day searching for wildlife can be difficult even for somebody with professional training but in kruger it's everywhere just everywhere <laughs> and what about accommodation I mean, is it sort of all high-end stuff or you can can you do it on a budget oh we we definitely did it on a budget obviously as conservationists we don't get paid a huge amount so we always look for the cheaper option um it's great it's very easy to organize a trip to kruger so you've always got posh options if you want to pay lots of money and stay in incredibly luxurious hotels and lodges and always be guided then there's plenty of those options but if you want to go cheaper and a bit more independent then you can book directly through the san website which is the organization uh, south africa national parks organization and you can book all your accommodation through them which is great as well because it means all the money is going directly back to the national park and to managing the national park and the wildlife that accommodation is much more rustic so you stay in kind of bush camps where you'll have the tented accommodations fairly simple uh, beds um, and it varies between big camps where you can either camp or stay in these these kind of cabins and tents or you can stay in the, the really rustic bush camps which don't have electricity they have gas lamps they have a very thin electric fence around them <laughs> so animals prowl the edge and you kind of hope and pray you'll be all right um, but they're generally very safe of course when you say animals are hard to spot like giraffes are pretty tall are they the easiest <laughs> of the animals well why do you think they've got that camouflage pattern on them what, up against a green tree it's not going to help well they sort of melt in the background <laughs> Can I let the expert answer that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, there were a few surprises. There was one time where we were kind of like driving along slowly looking for wildlife and an elephant literally like popped out because where you've got vegetation, even a big animal can can hide pretty effectively. Um, As I say, in Kruger, you see a lot of stuff. There's the bigger animals like zebras and giraffes and elephants, even though they can hide they're often very visible and um, there's techniques you can use like going slowly um, and going to watering holes particularly in the afternoon where they'll they'll gather and looking out for signs such as you know vultures indicate potentially kill smaller animals and predators can be really tricky to see because they don't want to be seen and they don't they don't do a lot as well people get this impression from nature documentaries that animals are always doing stuff but actually when an animal is not eating or mating it's sleeping it's just conserving its energy most of the time. It's a bit like Phil. Sign me up for that. <laughs> <laughs> just on the zebra, poor design, black and white. You can't, you can't, you can't blend in. 
The thing Super that gets obvious, yeah. The thing, the thing that gets me as well about that area is how much bird life there is. Yes, there is so much bird life. And what I have to say to people interested in wildlife is, if you don't take interest in birds and bugs, then you're going to be bored for ninety percent of the time. It's really worth looking at the birds because they are incredible. You get so many different behaviours and sizes and species and colours. Um, I'm very lucky because actually my husband is a professional ornithologist. So I've always got a bird guide with me telling me all about them and their kind of amazing behaviours. And, yeah, you get some really cool ones in Kruger, like the um, uh, Lamagaias. No, not Lamagaias. I'm getting a shake of the head. There are no... (laughs) (laughs) Other large vultures. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, what a fabulous life you two must lead. Yeah. Thank you so much for chatting to us. Thanks, Brian. It's always fun talking about wildlife. Oh, good. Thank you, Bryony. We'll have links in show notes to all our guests, in fact, alongside links to travel safety in South Africa and five places to get off that beaten track. Now, Phil, uh, did you know South Africa has the oldest wine history outside of Europe? Uh, Exactly. And according to research, the first grapes were pressed in 1659. And today, South Africa is the world's ninth largest wine producer. Well, we talked about visiting vineyards in the Western Cape earlier in the episode with Sarah, which inspired yep. you, not me this time, to head out <laughs> and find some wine for us to try. So what have we got here? I also had to try and find a bottle opener. I have the Den Cabernet Sauvignon 2015 from Painted Wolf Wines. Rolled off the tongue. You'd like that one? Yeah. This uh, particular wine, it says you'll experience a medium to full bodied wine. Let me try and guess what's in it, what the okay, flavours are. Yeah, there's yours. Thank you. Well, it, it, they reckon, and see if you agree. <laughs> yeah, <right>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I will sip that, not slurp it. Okay. Typical Cabernet flavours of blackcurrant. Yep. Brambly fruit. Well, I don't know what that tastes like, but I can definitely well, get you know, blackcurrant. Like black, blackberries. You know, those sort of, those ones. Uh, cigar box. What? Yes. <laughs> yeah, you can, I, I can taste that. That sort of smoky cigar sort of aftertaste there. Oh, that, that is actually not It's not bad, is it? Yeah. And, of course, uh, a nice well-rounded tasty oak finish to it. Nice texture. Soft, ripe tannins. Yes, I'd agree with that, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> and a long fruit-driven finish. Mm, couldn't have said it better myself, old boy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know. Uh, it tastes pretty good. But, yeah, and it good. also is wine with a purpose. I like this wine. It's Why? Nice. Are we going to finish the bottle when we finish the <laughs> Of course. Can't leave it open. Well, this this wine's got a purpose because they give back with a percentage of their sales going to the conservation of African wild dogs and their natural habitats. How so, much did it cost you? Uh, Twenty bucks a bottle. Gee, that's all $20 right. Twenty dollars Australian. So what's that? Three, you know, two dollars American. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Depends how we're going at the moment. I think, but you that's can... all right. So you can knock this one back and you know help save the wild dogs. Mm, well, I definitely got that um, blackberry. Oil. Might need hair of wild dogs later. <laughs> Exactly. Well, that wraps up our party. We're moving on. Uh, next week, Tim Vores, a passionate long-distance hiker who spent six months trekking the Pacific Crest Trail in the US. Bye. Cheers.